This is They Create Worlds, episode 75, Gunning for Light. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. All right, everyone. We need to be like Captain N. We have to charge up our zappers, get ready to take on the enemy, and only get two shots. Well, I think we'll probably get a few more than that. Really? Yes, our guns don't need to fail at the dramatically appropriate moment. Oh, so we get full-blown power packs, not those little dinky ones. Really, if you're trying to just play a game and you're running off a battery that's the size of an NES controller. No. (laughs) That aside, we have light guns, corded, possibly even uncorded ones, but definitely full of light, blasting, guns, shooting. It's going to be all about taking out cowboys, aliens. You could even use that Super Nintendo Super Scope and have bazooka action. That's right. And not just guns of light, but we'll be talking about Really, all of the ways that the arcade, primarily the arcade, but also the home, have incorporated gun-shaped controllers of one form or another into their video gamey and arcade gamey goodness. Oh, so we even get to cover things like time crisis with the uh, recoil effect and the whole dodging mechanic and stuff. Yeah, sure. Oh, goody. So I guess way back in the day, before consoles, before computers, In the dark times of arcade with pennies, those interesting 20-second shows where you just had to crank it fast enough, you had some sort of violence going on. You did. Of course, we've talked about the early arcade before. The early arcade, the early penny arcade, was more of a vaudeville-type experience. It was sights and sounds more than it was games. But there were games, not just in arcades, but also on boardwalks and at amusement parks and whatnot. The gun games actually date back just about that far. The very first gun games were coming to prominence in the 1890s. It's kind of crazy to think that you had games like that going back that far. You always think of light guns or those kind of electric mechanical guns as being a modern contrivance or at least semi-modern contrivance because, well, I need electricity in order to make light. Sure. But, of course, we have had uh, electricity and even light for a while. Now, these games in the 1890s were not light gun games, because we're not just looking at light gun games. The games that were appearing in that period were still electric, though. Basically, the way they worked is, and we've talked about this method before, is they worked through the use of wipers and contacts. So you would have a gun that could swivel, and somewhere underneath the hood of that gun there would be a metal protrusion of some kind, a wiper, that would move back and forth as your gun moved back and forth. Then you would have various targets, and those targets would have wipers of their own. If they were stationary targets, they would probably just be hooked up to the contact, but if they were moving targets, then those targets would also have their own wipers attached to them that are moving back and forth and round and round. And then you'd have a contact in between these two sets of wipers. 
And when both the wiper from the gun and the wiper from a target hit a contact at the same time, it would complete a circuit. And then the electricity generated by the completion of that circuit would cause the target to do whatever it was going to do, fall over or make a sound or all of the above, etc. It's just pure electric circuits is how this whole thing started. It was good for people that were interested in target shooting but couldn't or wouldn't have guns. I mean, particularly in Europe, I think these games were popular in Britain in the early arcades because you didn't have the same access, perhaps, to guns that you had in the United States, where gun ownership and gun carriage was a little more common and you could go out and shoot real guns at target ranges or whatnot. In Europe, you didn't necessarily have the same freedom to do that, and so Britain is where the very first of these games started appearing, as did many of the early coin-operated amusements. We talked about this in our Origin of Arcades episode, how the British were ahead of the United States in industrialization, so the British were figuring out how to do these kind of games before Americans were. But then they, they migrated to the United States as well, but they were not as big a part of the early penny arcade in the 1890s and the uh, first decade of the 20th century. So all the early arcades really focused on electromechanical functionality. What was sort of the big thing that really popularized this, if not in the United States, at least worldwide? Sure. So a funny thing happened, and we talked about this uh, some in our arcade episode. You know, a funny thing happened in kind of the early part of the 20th century. The arcade changed from a place where you were doing sights and sounds to a place where you were mostly doing games of chance, gambling, slot machines. The reason for that being, as we discussed in our arcade episode many, many moons ago, three years ago, (laughs) if you can believe it. This is the 75th episode. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. As you may recall, the motion picture industry got going, so you were watching projected movies in a movie theater, you weren't turning the crank anymore, and phonographs were no longer the same novelty they were. People could own them, even middle class and even some working class people could now afford them. So that side of things kind of lost its appeal and was replaced by this gambling element. Well, then the gambling element ran afoul of regulators because this was a period of time where there was much moral crusading. I mean, even today, the United States is prone to bouts of moral crusading. But I mean, this really was a time period. This is the same time period the temperance movement was going and you had labor movements going and all sorts of movements and not all of them morally based, but many of them morally based. So gambling very quickly became a no-no. These slot machines were just seen as ways to cheat poor people out of their money, which, you know, is not entirely wrong. (laughs) On about the mid-1920s, it became clear that there would need to be some skill again in order to keep these operations running. If you're just pulling the lever on your one-armed bandit, those kind of games are getting outlawed. So in order to avoid confiscation, you needed to put skill back in. There are a few different types of games that started appearing during this time period, like cranes, and of course, just a few years later, pinball. But doing something with shooting was also a way to put some skill back in. So you started to get more countertop kind of mechanical games. We're not talking about electric games now, because the early game arcade industry, if we want to call it that, the kind of 
mid-20s to early 1930s period of coin-operated amusement was largely countertop because at this point, the penny arcades are a thing of the past. You have a few here and there, but you don't have many. So the games that you're having tend to be things that are on store counters. You buy something from the store clerk, you get your change back, you put a penny or nickel in the machine that's sitting on the counter right by where you just paid, you have some fun, you get a chance to win a prize. So it's it's like the slot machine in that you put your money in and hope that you get a return of some kind, but it's not just pull a lever. It's putting some skill into it so that people are like, okay, this is a game, so if people get a reward of some kind, which generally in this period not a cash reward, at least not above the table. But yes, you may get some reward for what you do, but the point is that you're testing your skill. The point is not that you're gambling. There was a very popular countertop game called Target Skill by a company called ABT Manufacturing. And it's not electromechanical or a light gun, so it's not worth going into all of that history as part of this episode. But the point is this game was insanely popular because you had to shoot little balls into little holes on this countertop game. And if you got balls in all the holes, you won a prize, you know, usually a candy of some kind. Or like I said, maybe you get a token that you then surreptitiously <laughs> trade in for money. But theoretically, it's free of monetary winnings. That's kind of the beginning of bringing gun games back into vogue, and it's the beginning of the coin-operated amusement industry turning back to skill after a couple of decades of really not having any skill involved at all. Of course, as this continues to develop, and we talked about this in our Birth of the Arcade episode, so don't have to go into huge detail again, but as this continues to develop, you have the depression coming along, so you have cheap entertainment being valuable again. So the idea of these nickel and penny machines being entertainment pieces is becoming a very strong driver again. You have the Sportland arcade concept, which brings the arcade back. And so you've got a new wave of arcades that instead of being based primarily around sights and sound, are primarily based around games of skill like crane machines and shooting games and pinball. So we kind of come full circle there, and it's in this period of time that the light gun is actually first invented. The first patent, the first known patent for a light gun, was actually filed in the United Kingdom in 1920. It's kind of crazy to think of that being around that early, but there's really not a huge amount of technology I don't think really to the light gun portion of it, to the idea that you just pull a trigger and it completes a circuit that shoots some photons out the end of it. It's not that complicated as far as electromechanical technology goes. I would imagine the hardest part, at least for the light gun, is based off of where the light goes, is having the sensor that detects that light. Exactly. And there's no evidence that there ever was a light gun game created in the 1920s. There's a guy, a Cypriot, that I think we've brought up before in a couple of our arcade episodes. We don't bring him up often because we don't normally talk about the non-video portion of this. But there's a Cypriot named Nick Costa who did what's probably the foundational work in the very, very early coin-op industry. His work basically stops around 1910. He's really focused on the early penny arcade in the early 19th century. And he's done a lot of research into the patents particularly in the United Kingdom, to kind of figure out, okay, who was the first person to file a patent on this? Who was the first person to file a patent on that? 
This is a period of time where there really weren't trade publications devoted to the period. So there's not regular publications that are announcing so-and-so has come out with their new games. I mean, their catalogs and whatnot for the bigger companies, but the easiest way to figure out who did what first was to look at the patents. But the patents only tell you who came up with an idea. They don't always tell you how that idea was ultimately used. So there was a guy, Patterson, in Britain in 1920 that invented a light gun. He patented it. According to Costa's research, which was very thorough, I would certainly take his word on it, absent any new developments, this is the first time a light gun was ever created. But there was no game then. And it's very possible that the problem there was on the target end. Because on the target end, it's a little more complicated because it is electronics. Of course, electronics, an electronic device is a device where you are manipulating electrons to achieve a specific purpose. In these days, when you're talking electronic components, you're largely talking vacuum tubes. They tended to have issues and needed constant care, love and attention, and replacement. Sure. I don't know exactly when the light-sensing vacuum tube was invented. I mean, vacuum tubes go back to the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, The first diode, vacuum tube diode, was invented in 1904. The first vacuum tube triode was invented a couple of years later. So vacuum tubes had been around for a couple of decades at this point, but I don't know when the light-sensing vacuum tube was actually invented. This would be a vacuum tube that can take photons, that can take light, and convert that light into electrical energy in order to have something happen. At some point in here, at least by the 1930s, the light-sensitive vacuum tube, photosensitive vacuum tube, had been invented. The first company that created a light gun-based game was an Oklahoma company called the Ray of Light Corporation. How appropriate. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it was presumably this corporation was specifically created to exploit this technology. And don't know anything. I mean, we know some names because they're on patent applications. But don't know anything about who these people were. I couldn't tell you how they got into this, what made them decide to do a game. But it's the first time that a light gun was ever used, and they called their game Ray of Light as well. It consisted of the light gun, which shot a beam of light, and a target area that had targets with these light-sensing tubes embedded in the middle of them. And uh, the original game was ducks. And so the duck would fly out because it's got a little mechanical thing going on. Duck would fly out and you'd take aim and you'd pull your trigger, shoot the beam of light. And then if you were able to make contact with that sensor in the middle of the duck, then, you know, register to hit. And the duck did whatever it did when you hit it. I think I played this one. There's a dog that brings me to duck, right? (laughs) That comes later. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, duck hunting is a logical theme for this kind of game. I mean, in these very early days, the themes tended to be hunting themes or shooting gallery themes. By shooting gallery, I mean kind of carnival games with the kind of targets that you would find in a carnival like pop gun or BB gun kind of shooting game or hunting. Those were kind of the themes. You didn't really get other themes yet at this point. So this game in about 1935, 1936, this Ray of Light game was the very first light gun product. Mid-1930s, well, well, well predating video games. It was quickly picked up by Seaberg Corporation. We've talked about Seaberg a couple of times before. They were primarily a jukebox company, 
And then later they became the parent company of Williams. We talked a lot about Seberg in our Williams episode since they became the parent company. But in this period of time, they were primarily a jukebox company. It was the middle of the Depression, and Seberg was hit really, really hard by the Depression. A lot of companies were. I mean, they're not unique in that. So basically, you know, their business was coin technology. I mean, they were doing jukeboxes, but technology involving coin-operated stuff. So basically, Seberg just expanded out into anything they could. They expanded into washing machines. They expanded into parking meters. If it was something that could conceivably have a coin slot on it, they explored being involved in it. And so Seberg got involved in games in this time period because it's another thing you can put a coin slot on. And of course, games, uh, particularly pinball, but other games as well, are doing very well in this climate. So they end up purchasing Ray of Light. I think they, I don't know if they purchased the company or just purchased the game and the patents or, or whatever, but I mean, they end up with the concept. And so Seberg is the company that actually mass produces that and has great success with it. They do uh, other games as well. They do a very popular one called Shoot the Bear, where uh, a bear comes out of the woods and then you shoot it and it turns around and goes back and <laughs> all of that stuff. And one called Coon Hunt, which sounds unfortunate today, but I mean, it was it was raccoons. <laughs> People don't tend to use the word coon to refer to raccoons anymore because it's become, you know, a, a racial slur. <laughs> this was raccoon hunting, uh, the game Coon Hunt. So Seberg was the primary company doing this light game stuff. And I think a part of that as well is, you know, they were involved in coin operation, but there were vacuum tubes and jukeboxes. So I think they were a little more electronically savvy than your Bally's and your Williams's and your exhibit supplies and some of the other coin operated amusement companies at this time that were still firmly in the electromechanical world, not the electronic world. So in this time period, the principal gun game, well, either these countertop mechanical games, which remained popular throughout the period, or it was the electric rifle style games, which are those wiper contact style games. The popularity of these games really, really picked up when World War II started. And that's the first time you really start to see a military theme. I'm sure there's probably an isolated example somewhere of a military themed game before World War II. World War II is what really got us into gun games with military targets for the first time. But it was still primarily these contact wiper games. And some of these games had actual targets, you know, little metal things that moved across on a chain, you know, across the field. And some of them used projection, projected targets onto a screen. But even the games where the targets were projected onto the screen... Then there was interaction within the game cabinet between the gun and the projector. So there were still wipers and contacts within it that were tracking the movement and figuring out your position using electric means. It's not like Duck Hunt. It's not like a light gun video game where there's actually something sensing your target that's projected on the screen. It's not like that because in this period, it's actually a light gun. In the video game period, it's reversed, right? The light is coming from your television. And your gun is sensing the light. They call them light guns because the light gun concept had already existed in the arcade. So that terminology was already out there. But technically, video game light guns aren't light guns. They're light receiving guns. And that doesn't roll off the tongue quite (laughs) the same way. Exactly. But these guns in this period were actual light guns. You pull the trigger, light. Right. So you could potentially blind a cat by shooting the cat with the light gun. 
So projection games where you had light-based targets were not operating in the same way as a light gun video game. There would still be an apparatus within the cabinet that was tracking movement positions and then looking for the wiper from the gun and the wiper from the target to hit the same contact at the same time to create explosion. So uh, there was a very popular one in 1939 uh, from a company called Keeney. Keeney is one of uh, a few companies that were very prominent in electromechanical arcade games that did not survive long enough to make the jump into video. So companies like Bally, Williams, Midway, they lasted long enough that they made that transition, so they became video game companies. Uh, There were a couple of prominent companies that petered out in the 60s, so they didn't last long enough to become video game companies, and Keeney was one of those. But they had a very popular game called Anti-Aircraft Machine Gun, and it was this big, (laughs) solid-looking machine gun. We can put it in the show notes. I I can't remember if I've come across any videos of it actually being played, but there are videos of it being shown, like here's anti-aircraft machine gun. So I know we can put it in the show notes, even if we can't show the operation of it. But it's a big, sizable gun, you know, and you're shooting at airplanes. (laughs) Obviously, anti-aircraft machine gun. Seaberg adapted its light gun games to have military targets instead of hunting targets. Some of those have unfortunate names, particularly ones focusing on the Pacific Theater, where there was a lot of racism towards the Japanese, as you know from those old Looney Tunes, the ones they don't show on the television anymore. (laughs) Yes, there's a lot of racial stereotypes and caricatures that went on in a lot of the early cartoons. I still loved them as a kid, but today's enlightened age, not necessarily appropriate, then again, with a lot of these things, and that's one of the things you run into with history is you have to look at it within the context of the time that the media or whatever it is was made. And then it was appropriate to do that kind of thing. Right. But no, no matter how we may think about that now. Exactly. So some of these had unfortunate names like Trap the Siamese Rats. The Siamese Rats not being rats. <laughs> this, you know, Coon Hunt was raccoons. Trap the Siamese Rats was not rats. So you had some unfortunate propaganda stuff like that. But, you know, obviously with war coming on, this made the gun game a popular thing. They kind of peaked in popularity during this period leading up to the war and then the very beginning of the war. And then all coin-op production stopped once the United States entered the war. So, you know, your last new games kind of came out in early 1942 because at that point there's a lot of metal in electromechanical games. That metal was needed for, like, tanks and bombers and stuff. Bullets. Yes. Definitely bullets. So there's a hiatus there. After the war, the light gun game really kind of falls out. I mean, they exist. They never stop existing. But one of the advantages of the light gun game is that they could be a little more compact. These electric gun games tended to be very big. We talked about this, I think, in our arcade episode. I'm not positive. But they had to be very big because there had to be enough distance between yourself and the target that it was actually a challenge to hit the target. So that naturally lends itself to big games. Using wipers and contacts, you could be closer to the targets than if you were shooting a real gun, but you still had to have some distance between yourself and your target. Like gun games, you needed that distance too, but I think you need a little less. But after the war, a gentleman named Eldon Dale, an engineer from California, came up with an ingenious new method of doing gun games where he created a very small cabinet and used mirrors 
to give the illusion of greater depth within the cabinet and then had the gun attached to a rod. And so it was still a wiper contact system. But because of the use of mirrors, you were able to create a compact cabinet, which still made the targets look like they were far enough away and had enough depth to them that there would be some challenge to hitting the targets. Funnily enough, that was basically the start of what we consider the classic-looking video game cabinet. I mean, that basic cabinet shape, obviously a gun game cabinet from the 1950s is going to look different than a video game cabinet from the 1980s. But the idea that you have a control panel jutting out in front, which on the gun game would have your gun on a swivel, and then you have a glass protector, and then behind that glass protector you have your play field. It's not a monitor, but it's a play field. And you have it in kind of this compact form. That's really where our classic conception of an arcade video game cabinet comes from, is from the way these gun games were, were put together. And these are floor models, not countertop models, right? That's correct. All of this would be floor models primarily. So yeah, definitely. I can certainly see how you have that set up. And I don't think I've seen anything in the last 20 to 30 years that has changed much in the way they designed the cabinet. It's still very much basically the same of you got the play area, you got your control area, mm-hmm. and there's usually a light slant to it or whatever, or right. sometimes they might take the sides off or something and yeah. you just have the monitor there and some of the more modern ones. But the overall basic design is more or less perfect because you have a human that's coming up to this. You need something that's going to be at a comfortable arm level to access it but something that is accessible enough that someone who's a bit smaller can still reach and comfortably play and someone who's taller can still reach and comfortably play Mm -hmm. the fact that they were able to have the wherewithal in order to come up with this all the way back then speaks to the quality and testament of the design that is still in use today absolutely light gun games really weren't that prevalent post-war Now, they were more prevalent in Japan. We talked about Sagan. We talked about how David Rosen was importing used product from the United States. He imported a lot of light gun games, a lot of old Seaberg games for his very early arcades. So like in the 50s and early 60s, light gun games were fairly prevalent in Japan. In fact, he would even repackage them. He would just take the targets and take the guns, the parts that are the real technological parts, and then make more elaborate kind of custom spaces in which those targets and and guns inhabited. So the the light gun thing went on a little longer in Japan, but even in Japan, they finally moved on to this more wiper contact system because now that you could have more compact cabinets, it was more practical to do that kind of game than to do a light gun game. You know, in Japan, they call their arcades game centers now, but back in the day when the first kind of arcade spaces by which I mean little annexes to department stores, supermarkets, bowling alleys, not standalone arcades, but annexes to existing businesses. You know, they didn't call them game centers back then. The game center nomenclature kind of came out of the metal game fad that we've talked about before. The early game spaces in Japan were called gun corners because that was the game that the Japanese really, really liked above all others. And and that's because, and we explained this in some of our Japanese episodes, That's because there were really strict gun control laws in Japan. So basically nobody owned guns, not even like air guns or BB guns or whatever. I mean, basically nobody owned firearms. So for people that liked target shooting, this was their way to target shoot was doing these games. So the shooting games were particularly popular 
and the early Japanese arcades were called gun corners. So that's a basic overview of the electric mechanical side. I mean, we get some more complex games like Periscope and, and Missile that Sega does. We've talked about some of that technological stuff before. And those are far more elaborate games with far more going on inside of them. But they're still at their core. You have shooting mechanism attached to wiper, target attached to wiper, contact in between them. And when gun wiper and target wiper connect same contact, circuit completes, something happens. I mean, that's the basic technology that's still being used in the arcades right up until the time that the video game appears. Video games and light guns literally go back to the very beginning of video games. Well, essentially. The very first video game was Computer Space, and it wasn't. Or the very first commercial video game was Computer Space, and it didn't have a gun controller, obviously. But the Magnavox Odyssey was the very first home console, and the Magnavox Odyssey had a gun. And that thing looked like a gun. It did, because, of course, back then you didn't have the same laws. And we've talked about this in the context of Nintendo, where early NES systems have a gray zapper. Later NES systems have an orange zapper. And the reason for that is that in that period, 86, 87, 88, right in there, whenever the transition was, is when there were new laws passed in the United States saying the guns could not look like guns because there had been incidents where kids had brought toy guns to school and gotten shot or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, this thing looks like a real gun, and actually it was manufactured by Nintendo. (laughs) Or at least the molds came from Nintendo. Even if Nintendo wasn't building them in their own factory, they provided the molds. Now, they weren't doing the technology side of it. But Nintendo had had a very popular toy that we've talked about before called the Beam Gun in the 1970s. And that was a light gun, and it interacted with solar cells, like the kinds of cells that you have on your solar calculators. So you would shoot the beam of light at the solar cell on the target, and the solar cell would register, hey, there's lots of light here, and then something would happen, barrels would split apart, lions would roar, you know, whatever your target was. And that was a very successful product. So they were making guns, and Magnavox actually used their molds for uh, the guns that they were packaging and uh, shipping as an accessory, as an add-on to the uh, Magnavox Odyssey. The light gun concept went all the way back to uh, the beginnings of the project when Ralph Baer was working on it at Sanders Associates. I'm sure that he was cognizant to some degree of what was going on in the arcades. I mean. I don't think he was an arcade game player himself, but if you're making a video game system, you're kind of aware of what's out there. And it's just a, it's a kind of logical thing. It's a system that can only make spots, only make dots on the screen. So you can bat the dots back and forth, or you can make dots appear and disappear. So if you're going to make a dot disappear, what's a logical thing to make the dot disappear? Getting shot. From very, very early on, they had a light gun. Bill Harrison went down to Sears. Bill Harrison was the technician that worked with Ralph Baer to implement most of Ralph Baer's ideas. Bill Harrison went down to Sears, bought a toy gun, and then modified it with the optical equipment. Uh, It was a very important part of getting the funding they needed because as they're demonstrating this game to their superiors, remember Sanders Associates, where they work as a defense contractor, not an entertainment company, so it's a bit of a strange sell. But the corporate director of R&D, who was responsible for funding this thing, Herbert Campman, he was really enamored with the gun shooting game. I mean, that was one of the things that was really kind of key to getting them support within the company. So guns and video games go hand in hand from the very beginning. 
this gun was very primitive. Now, at this point, we're into solid-state technology, so you don't need a vacuum tube anymore. You have photoresistors, resistors that are able to accept light and, you know, detect light and convert it to electrical impulse. So you, you've got solid-state components now. You don't have uh, big, clunky vacuum tubes. I can only imagine them trying to sell that to the public and go, yeah, you can use that Magnavox Odyssey in order to shoot the targets on the screen, but you have to load up with the vacuum pack. (laughs) And then you have to show a little video of some kid like ejecting this uh, pack of uh, five or whatever vacuum tubes and it hits the floor (laughs) and he slams in a new one, cocks it and goes right back at it. Right. So, uh, so, you know, you've got a solid state component, a little photoresistor. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple electronics. It's nothing too complex. When you pull the trigger, you're essentially activating that photoresistor. You're causing it to go into detect mode, <laughs> to put it in very simple layman terms. And then if it picks up a light source during that window where you've clicked the trigger and it's opened and shut, then it converts that into electrical energy and then it causes whatever to happen to happen. You know, your gun controller is hooked up to your video game system, so then it sends whatever impulse it sends to the game console, and then the game console takes that input and does whatever it's supposed to do. So uh, the Magnavox Odyssey had that. It had a gun. It was a separate accessory. It didn't come with the system until the last year, the last year of the Magnavox Odyssey 1975, to get rid of leftover stock. They actually bundled the gun with the system and raised the price from 100 to $110 and, and sold it as a set. Because at that point, they were just trying to clear out because they were moving on to the next generation of video game systems. It was just dots on the screen. And generally speaking, I mean, it's so primitive. I mean, there's no real AI to it. So generally speaking, these were two-player games where one person was shooting and the other person was controlling the dot <laughs> using the standard Odyssey controller. Like all the other Odyssey games, there were overlays, so there were four different target shooting games, each that had different quote-unquote rules that were defined by the overlays and how the instructions told you to position the dots. You know, there's no computer capability, no AI capability within the system itself to move dots here and there. There is one machine-controlled dot, but it's not really conducive to these kind of games, so positioning the dot where it's supposed to be is basically a manual activity. They're kind of lame as far as shooting games go. And of course, the other thing is, is this is the simplest of simplest light guns. We'll talk in a bit how, very shortly, how light guns worked in most video games. But in this one, it's just press trigger, photoresistor, captures light, dot disappears. There's no failsafe to that. It's just looking to see if you have a bright light source. So on your television, the entire television screen is black with the exception of where your spot is. That's the one bright piece of light. So in the context of pointing it at your television, there's no way to quote-unquote fool it because there's only one bright spot on the whole television. But any bright light source will do. All it is doing is looking to see if there is a bright light at that instant that you pull the trigger and activate the resistor. Oh, I can win, Susie. Look at me. Why don't you manipulate that dot? Pay attention to that dot very carefully. And do not pay attention to me gently moving this nice light gun over here by the lamp. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's rubbish in that sense because, yeah, you can point it at a lamp and it reacts the same way as if you pointed it at the dot on the screen. 
there's not much to it, and it's it's a separate peripheral. I don't think they sell well. I don't think they do particularly well, but it's there. It's the very first light gun on a video game. You know, as I said, it's light gun reversed from the way it was in the arcade, because instead of the gun shooting the light, the gun is receiving the light. The next kind of breakthroughs in light guns and in gun games really happen in the arcade, because you can do something a wee bit more sophisticated than your poor Magnavox Odyssey can do. There's a Sega game that comes out in early 1974 that is the first arcade light gun game, and we really don't know anything about it. It's in Japan, there's language barrier, and this is a period of time when Japanese video games weren't doing much anyway, so I don't really think the game saw wide distribution or anything. But Sega did create a game called Balloon Gun. It's a gun game, it's a light gun game. I can't really tell you much about how it worked. There's pictures of the cabinet, so there were two pistols attached to the cabinet, and I think balloons floated across the screen, and you had to shoot the balloons, and it was a competition. Whoever shot the most balloons in the time limit won. I mean, we know that much. But how the light gun in that worked, don't know. (laughs) We don't know if it's the emitter or the receiver. I'm sure it has to be the receiver, because it doesn't work any other way with video games. But how it registers hits, I don't know. So we can't really talk about that one, but we have to point out that it was out there because it was, by a few months, the very first arcade video game that used a gun controller. The first one in the United States, because there's no way in heck Balloon Gun ever made it to the United States. (laughs) These Japanese companies were not distributing video games to the U.S. at this time. They were just creating domestic output. They were distributing electromechanical games to the U.S., but not their video game output. The first one that we know anything about is a game by Atari called Quack, spelled uh, Q-W-A-K. You will not find any videos of it on YouTube, so we can't really put it in the show notes. If you type in Quack, Q-W-A-K, you will get results, but in 1982, Atari released a completely unrelated game called Quack that has nothing to do with light guns or anything, so that is not the game. I have looked because I've been curious to see how it plays, I have looked and looked on YouTube, and there, there are no videos of Quack. Quack was, as the name implies, a duck hunting game. And it was created at CN Engineering in Grass Valley, which we've talked about before, the advanced R&D arm of Atari, by an engineer named Ron Milner, who went on to be one of the principal creators of the video computer system in prototype form. He wasn't involved in the chip creation. The chips were created by other people, but the very first wire-wrapped prototype was created at CN Engineering by Steve Mayer and, and Ron Milner. So this is an important guy in Atari history. This was one of the first things he did. This is the first game he did all by himself. He contributed some to Grand Track, their racing game, because they were working on that when he first arrived at the company. But this is the first original video game creation that he did. He was cognizant of the shooting games in the arcade. Uh, In fact, CN Engineering ran a coin route in Grass Valley. They didn't have many games. Grass Valley isn't that big. But Atari were big believers in having that kind of frontline experience, understanding the way the arcade worked so that you could better create games for the arcade. So CN Engineering actually had a few games that it had out on location. And basically, they used the money that they collected from those games to fund their parties. You know, when they would have an office party or whatever, it would be funded by their coin op route. So he was certainly aware, I've interviewed Ron Milner, and he was aware that there were target shooting games in the arcade, and so he thought it would just be a kind of neat thing to adapt that into a video game format. So he did. Now this game will sound very familiar. 
<laughs> we were joking about this before, but this game will sound very familiar. One duck or two ducks fly onto the screen. You have some a little bit of time to shoot them before they fly back off the screen. And when you manage to shoot a duck, it nosedives into the ground and a dog comes out and fetches it. I did play this one before. <laughs> there is no doubt whatsoever <laughs> that <laughs> Nintendo, <laughs> when they created Duck Hunt, just playing ripped off quack i mean it's it's i mean yeah there's only so much you can do with duck hunting but the fact that it's the ducks are behaving in a similar manner and you've got the dog and yeah that's not a coincidence (laughs) atari games were available in japan namco brought them over so nintendo i'm sure would have been aware of that game even though it's impossible to find today (laughs) back in 1984 10 years later i'm sure someone at nintendo saw a quack game because it's just too similar now sega had an electromechanical game called duck hunt it's not like ron milner invented the entire concept of a shooting game in the arcade with ducks either but you know, when you add the dog in and everything else, it's like, okay, Nintendo, I think you saw that one. Now, in the arcade, it's a little more important than it is in the home to make sure that you're not cheating. You cannot deploy in the arcade a light gun where if you point it at the lamp or if you point it at the light in the ceiling of the arcade, it's going to register a hit. This time, we had to be a little more sophisticated and figure out a way to stop that from happening. And, of course, in an arcade machine, you have more electronics. It's a more expensive device, so you have the ability to use whatever circuits and whatever silicon you need to get your desired result. It's not like the Odyssey, which is very, very primitive, all uh, discrete transistors and diodes. (laughs) The method that Ron Milner used, and for all I know, Balloon Gun used this method, too. It's just we don't have it. We don't know. The way this game worked is that when you shot the gun, the spot where the target is, the spot where the duck is, briefly flashes. There's a, like, fraction of a second flash where the duck is. Basically imperceptible to the human eye, and in fact, on Quack, it was imperceptible to the human eye because of the way they had the monitor brightness turned up, because there were scenery elements, there were reeds that were silkscreened. I mean, they were not part of the computer graphics because you couldn't do computer graphics like that back then. In order to create the silhouette with the reeds to make them show up properly, you needed to have a brighter screen. And so the brightness actually practically washed out that dot, made it almost imperceptible to the human eye. But when you shot the gun, for a brief moment, there was a flash of light where the duck was. And that is the flash that the light gun picks up to register a hit. And how is that different from me pointing it at a lamp? That's a good question. We don't know a lot about Quack. For all I know, if there was a particularly bright light source, maybe it would cause it to go. There are ways, which we'll talk about when we get a little further on, to prevent that from happening, to stop the cheating from happening. I'm not positive, honestly, if they were implemented on Quack. I presume they might have been, but we're into speculation again. It's a shame that these very early light gun games just aren't around to see how they work. It must have to do with the way the flash goes off. Presumably, there's a moment right before the flash where the screen is kind of dark, and then the flash happens in just a fraction of a second, and then the flash goes off again. And it's looking for that brief burst of light in darkness rather than just pointed at a bright light and something happens. Like, you need the flash. 
you know, it's it's not just that it senses the light, it's that it senses a flashing light. It had to sense the darkness too, so the only exactly. way for you to really trick it would be if somehow moving the gun fast enough at a piece of black paper and a lamp at the same time and moving right. it back and forth. And that's the only way I can think of the cheetah. And, and that's just too impractical. So I assume that's the way it works. Somebody had one, they could see it and figure it out. But I'm, I'm presuming that's the way it works. And then, yeah, that stops the cheating. So that's Quack. It's not hugely successful. It's not a flop or anything, but this is still a period of time when most games aren't doing big business. So it's not particularly successful. Light gun games never really become a big part of the arcade in this time period. Uh, video games, I mean. They're out there. There are a few. Uh, the very first game that Sega releases in the United States, uh, a game called Bullet Mark, is a light gun game. They happen. I think Japanese companies do them more than American companies do, again, just because they were so much more popular gun games generally in Japan from the earlier era. But there are a few that have gun controllers, but most of them continue to use, even if they're target shooting games, they use more standard controllers. And then in the home, there really isn't much that goes on with light gun games. The dedicated consoles, the the early Pong systems, some of them actually have target shooting games as well. When General Instrument did their Pong on a chip that we've talked about before, they included a couple of target shooting games as well. Most models didn't make use of that functionality because you had to include a separate controller input in order to make that happen. Paddle controls are no good for shooting things. So it was only some of the higher end, more expensive systems that actually came with a gun peripheral. I don't know how those guns worked. I don't know if they were cheatable like the Odyssey was. They might have been. Uh, Wouldn't surprise me. But people weren't really buying consoles for those little target shooting games. People were primarily buying them to play the ping pong. So that's not so significant. And there really wasn't, there really weren't gun peripherals on the very first generation of consoles. And I imagine the reason for that is probably that the amount of sophistication that would have been needed to make those work appropriately, to not just work the way that the Magnavox Odyssey light gun worked, which was, it didn't, (laughs) essentially, Uh, it probably would have been prohibitively expensive. It wasn't worth it. You had primitive graphics on these systems anyway, and shooting blocky blocks with a light gun wasn't going to be exciting enough to get people to want to go out and buy something that would be sophisticated enough that it it wouldn't cheat. The first generation programmable consoles just really didn't go there. In the arcade, the really first kind of successful gun game, it took a while because the arcades didn't really go there either. They were all focused on their Space Invaders and their Pac-Man and all of these brand new and exciting concepts. They weren't going back to this old school kind of target shooting thing. It kind of fell by the wayside. It wasn't really until 1983 that you had a really successful arcade light gun game. It was the company Exidy that did it. I think we've talked about Exidy a little bit, but we haven't talked about them much. We won't go into their whole history right now, but they were smaller. They were an American company, but they were smaller than your Ataris and your Bally's. So they couldn't really compete on clones and whatnot. They couldn't really do well unless they tried to kind of figure out kind of unique things to do. So a lot of their games were fairly innovative, but they were never able to get really huge distribution on anything compared to your big boys, your Ataris, your Bally's, your Williams, your Segas. But they were always on the lookout for a niche, and that's, I think, really why they went back to the light guns. I mean, I've interviewed Hal Ivey, who is the VP of Engineering at Exidy, 
And I mean, he basically just indicated, you know, why did they do the gun game? Well, it's like, well, there hadn't been one in a while. <laughs> it, it felt like, you know, it was time that somebody could do something with this. So they created a hardware that was light gun based. And they came up with, well, I don't know if they came up with, but they used what became the standard and most effective system for doing a light gun product to make it foolproof from cheating and whatnot. You'll notice in any classic 80s or early 90s or late 90s light gun game, if you play them or if you watch what we put in the show notes, you'll notice that whenever you shoot the gun, the whole screen flashes white for an instant. What this does is rather than just saying, okay, there's a bright light suddenly in front of me, it's measuring actually what exact moment down to the microsecond. It's measuring what exact moment did the light from the screen reach my gun, reach my photoresistor. By computing the timing of the monitor as it's drawing the screen and computing when the flash reached the gun, it can figure out based on the intensity of the light beam and the timing of the light beam where that gun had to be pointed at that moment and then figures out where the gun hit. I don't know all the math behind it. I'm not a technical person, but it comes down to that timing thing. So if you point it at a lamp, it knows it's not going to be anywhere near the screen. <laughs> the way the light would play off of that is completely different than the way the light would play off the screen. It's measuring more, and that makes it cheat-proof. It's almost impossible to fool a system like that. If I can find a video that describes that, I'll throw that in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all a matter of timing. That screen flashes white, and the amount of time it takes for the light to reach the gun indicates what position on the screen it is. Yeah, so there's a lot more calculations going on. It's not just, oh, we got light. It's also, and we've got all this math going on in the background. Crossbow is a target shooting game where there's an on-screen character that you're protecting. He's walking across the screen, and as he's walking across the screen, there are things appearing on the streets and windows, all of this. Obviously, we'll put it in the show notes. And you have to protect the character on the screen from all of this stuff. I think probably in terms of the electronics, we're still at the point where it's not really all that easy to do what later light guns would do, which is having them shoot at you and then registering where they shoot on the screen and all of that. It was much easier to have a character on the screen being shot at or attacked rather than having you, the player, being attacked. It's an escort mission game, unlike later light gun games. It's also perhaps the very first arcade video game that used digitized sound sampling because this is when the first FM chips were starting to become available. So rather than kind of generic bleeps and bloops, you had realistic sounding gunshots, realistic sounding screams because they're actually digitizing sounds, converting real world analog sounds into ones and zeros and creating a very realistic digital reproduction of that analog sound. I think that probably also helped its popularity, and the fact that it was a gun game and had this crossbow controller that was anchored to the cabinet made it kind of more interesting and made it stand out, and it, it was fairly successful for its time. Its time, you have to recall, is 1983, when the arcade business is falling off a cliff, but still, it does well, all things considered, and it does well enough that every year after that, for several years, Exidy releases a new light gun game. 
they stick with a C theme. They put them in different settings, but there's Cheyenne, there's Chiller, all of these games that start with a C. They're kind of building a brand around these light gun games because Exidy had hit a rough patch. They were actually in bankruptcy for over a year. Chapter 11, they pulled out of it. They had this system that was working really well, so rather than come up with other types of games, they just kind of milked this system for several years. Chiller was the most controversial. That's the really violent one, isn't it? Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. It's kind of a horror theme, so there's a lot of mutilation, shooting body parts, torture, demonic stuff, satanic stuff, all kind of in there. So yeah, it was pretty controversial when it came out in 1986. But the basic gameplay is the same type of gameplay as, as Cheyenne and Crossbow and all the others. Is just you're shooting at things on the screen and the whole screen goes white, measures the timing that it takes the light to get to your gun, and calculates your position based on that. That is the standard method. That is how all the light gun games work for pretty much the rest of the CRT era. And it's also the reason why light gun games of the traditional type, of this type, using photoresistors don't work on LCD screens because it's measuring timings. And the timings that it's measuring are based on how long it takes the CRT to draw the screen. So you can make an LCD flash, obviously, but it's not drawing the screen. It's individually turning on and off individual pixels on the display. So you can't do a traditional light gun game using a high-definition television. You have to have the timing of the drawing of the image to figure out position. Because you're flashing the screen, you're figuring out how long the line takes, you're calculating position based on the drawing. If you're not drawing the screen with a CRT, it doesn't work. And that, uh, incidentally, is really why you don't see light gun games in the home anymore. You still see them in the arcades, and we'll get to that. But you don't see them in the home anymore because it ain't that simple. You can still do it, but it takes stupidly complicated setups of special equipment. It's not just flashing your TV screen and having something happen. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's only Nintendo and the Wii that brought back a semblance of shooting games with the Wii and the motion controller. Exactly. That's Crossbow and Chiller and Cheyenne and Combat and all of that good stuff, all the stuff that is being done by Exidy. There really isn't a lot of movement on light gun games in the arcade after that until kind of the end of the 1980s. But of course, light guns take a very central role in the home, and they do so because of Nintendo. And we've talked about this before as well. Nintendo had an image problem with video games because retailers weren't interested in stocking them anymore. We went over this ad nauseum. We won't go over it again. So we talked about the Trojan horse approach. They did like gun games. They were doing like gun games at the same time Exidy was in the arcade. Games like Wild Gunman and Hogan's Alley and Duck Hunt. They were being done as arcade games. They needed something that could allow them to say that they weren't selling video games. So they said, look, we have this robot and target shooting gun game that just happens to also play video games. So incorporating a light gun peripheral with the NES, bundling it with the NES, was a very important part of their strategy. I think it's fair to say that the NES is the only system that had a truly, really critically important light gun peripheral included with it. There have been light gun peripherals for other systems. There have been popular games using light guns for other systems. But this is the only time where having a light gun was really central to the entire strategy of what we're doing. And to think that at least three of the black box Nintendo games that were released in the initial run were shooting games. Exactly, because you had to have content. 
And obviously, (laughs) the number of shooting games released very quickly diminished. They did put a few more out, but once they had done their Trojan horse strategy, they didn't need it so much. Now, they released other games. It wasn't like the robot, where it just was completely shoved off into a corner and never heard from again. (laughs) Gyromite and the other one. Yeah, stack up. Yep. So (laughs) there were more games, but I mean, it very quickly fell by the wayside as well. Presumably, in order to keep the costs down, the NES Zapper did not work the same way as these arcade games, because that required more calculations. It required more hardware, faster hardware, in order to do that timing element. So I could shoot the lamp. No, you couldn't. Oh. It still has its ways, and it uses that method that we kind of discussed on Quack, the Quack may or may not have used. Basically, what happens is when you shoot the gun, the entire screen goes black for one frame. Now, remember, a frame, when we're talking about a frame, a television works at 60 frames per second. Now, the the individual NES games might not have been drawing that fast to save on processing power forever. I don't know what Duck Hunt specifically was drawing at, but in theory, a television can draw at 60 frames per second. So what that means is the entire screen is redrawn, one image on the screen is a frame, every 60th of a second. This is completely imperceptible to the human eye. That's why we think that we have a constantly moving image on the screen, when in actuality, it's a series of still pictures redrawn over and over and over again to give the illusion of movement so fast that our eye can't tell. So when we talk about the screen going black for one 60th of a second, We barely perceive that. We notice that there's kind of a flash, but we don't notice that the screen has literally gone black because that's faster than the human eye can process. So it goes completely black for one frame. Then a square, a little white block, appears where your duck is for one frame. If there are two ducks on the screen, it does them one at a time. Then it does another frame where the other duck is turned into a bright white block for one frame. Then the screen goes black again for a frame, and then the screen returns to normal. So if your gun is pointed at that white block in that frame that it is illuminating, in that barest fraction of a second, it registers the hit. The way it stops you from being able to shoot the light is that it needs the darkness on either side as part of registering the hit. So just pointing it at a lamp, in theory, shouldn't work. <laughs> right. You need to have something that is dark at the appropriate time. So it's almost to the point of we validate the input by saying, okay, do we have blackness? Great. All right, let's see if we're aiming in the right spot. Here's the one little square where you're allowed to hit. Fantastic. Are we still uh, pointing at the screen and not a lamp? Let's have that blackness again and make sure everything's still black. Great. We're doing this so fast that the likelihood of me aiming at the lamp, pointing at something dark enough, and then back at the lamp, or vice versa, is so hard that if you're spending that much effort that you can actually manage to do that with your hand, we're just going to give it to you. Right. It's not quite as effective a method as flashing the whole screen white, but it's almost as effective and it's less processor intensive. That's how the NES did it, and it was very successful. Meanwhile, in the arcade, you've got the other system where it's flashing the entire screen and then measuring the timing of when the light hits your gun. So, you know, the NES Zapper, lots of people get it. Are those games the most popular games on the system? No. 
but it helped them get in with retailers, and so it has an important place in history. In the arcade, the game that really brings gun games back, that really brings them here to stay after these kind of false starts, is Operation Wolf. Have you played Operation Wolf in the arcade? I may have, but it's not ringing any bells at the moment. So the cool thing about Operation Wolf, first of all, presumably because of advances in hardware, I don't know this for certain, but it's finally possible to do this with a rapid fire gun. Earlier guns aren't really that rapid fire. They're more like single shot guns. And even if you can kind of do single shots in relatively quick succession, I mean, in crossbow, you can do single shots pretty quickly, but it's still one shot at a time. Operation Wolf is a machine gun. rat a tat a tat a tat tat It's still using the screen flashing method, but I just assume that probably because the hardware is faster, the hardware is more advanced, it can do those timing measurements that much more rapidly so it doesn't need as much time to reset itself between shots. So you have a machine gun. It's in the shape of like a Mac 11 submachine gun is the shape of the controller. It's got a solenoid or something inside it that gives it recoil action that makes it vibrate and recoil kind of like a real gun. It's attached to the cabinet. Some people are confused over whether it's really a light gun or if it's a positional gun. In other words, a gun similar to the old wiper contact method. It's actually got measurements within the cabinet that are like an analog joystick almost that are measuring the exact location of the gun in order to figure out where it is on the screen, you know, not using light at all. But no, it it is a light gun game. I mean, if you take that thing apart, there's an optical sensor in there. And if you plug in another light gun, there's a video probably put in the show notes where somebody kind of takes that all apart and shows how that works and shows the generic light guns work in it too. Actually, the generic light gun part might not be in the video, but the point is there's also another guy that put a generic light gun onto an Operation Wolf board and it worked. So even though it's attached to the cabinet, it is a light gun game, but it's, and the screen flashes, but it's just really rapid fire. And so it's got that good feel to it because it's got that vibration. It's got that feedback, that haptic feedback. It's got the rapid fire machine gun, got lots of action on the screen. And I, I think this is really the first time that gun games are able to just kind of get exciting. Because the earlier gun games, they're a little slower paced. It's not as exciting as a Pac-Man or a Galaga or a Robotron, where there's just nonstop fast action adrenaline rush. It's kind of harder to get that in a gun game just because of the way the inputs work. But with Operation Wolf in 1987, you kind of finally had that. And it was a big hit. The story of gun games then in the 90s is a story of popularity. I mean, they're very popular. It's not necessarily a story of groundbreaking, but it's a story of ideas and technologies being developed in other areas being incorporated into the gun game genre. And they're successful, but I mean, it's it's kind of all based on the same idea. So Konami has a big hit in 1992 with Lethal Enforcers, which is a light gun game. And kind of the big thing there is it was the first one with digitized graphics, you know, just like the kind of graphics used in Mortal Kombat, this idea that you have real human-looking targets on the screen. So, you know, that's successful. You have Virtua Cop. Virtua Cop, the big thing about that one is it's the first with polygonal graphics. Yu Suzuki and his team that did Virtua Racer and Virtua Fighter, two of the very early successful polygonal games, then decided to take that concept and apply it to light gun games as well. And so 
they created one with polygonal graphics. But I mean, the, the light gun is working basically the same way. It's just taking graphical technologies and applying them to this. If there's one thing that, that these games change a little bit is that they bring precision shooting into it even more than an Operation Wolf does. You tend to have fewer targets on the screen since digitized graphics or polygonal graphics are more intensive, but then you have to be more precise in your shooting to take down targets, you know, a lot of the time. This is also the period where the first big hit in positional gun games comes in, and that's Terminator 2, which is a midway game. We talked about that when we talked about some of the Williams stuff previously, I think. But Terminator 2 is a light gun game. It's very similar in, to Operation Wolf in the way it plays. They were obviously inspired by Operation Wolf, except just setting it in the uh, dystopian future when the machines have taken over after Skynet nukes everything. But this game is not a light gun game. It is a positional gun game. What that means is that your gun is anchored to the cabinet and... When you move the gun left and right, and when you move the gun up and down, it's tripping sensors within the cabinet that are sending inputs like an analog joystick would back to the game saying, okay, it's tripped at this height, it's tripped at this angle, that means the gun is pointing at this location. And usually there's some sort of indicator on the screen as to where you're aiming. Exactly. Even if your sights are technically off, you really know where you're aiming. And it really is just a glorified joystick. It is. It's, it's just an analog joystick. And you have to calibrate it like an analog joystick. The player doesn't have to, but the arcade operator, you know, if he's doing his job every day, he's going back and recalibrating and letting the thing know, okay, this is this edge of the screen. This is that edge of the screen, just like you used to calibrate your flight sticks back in the day. This is the middle of the screen. It has to be calibrated. And once it's calibrated and knows what the offsets are for every part of the screen then it knows when it's at this offset, it's pointed in this direction. You know, it's got the big gun there to give you this powerful feeling of having the gun. But I mean, you could put your coat over the front of the gun and the game would still work because there's no actual sensor in the gun like there is in a light gun game telling it where your shots landed. These days, generally speaking, there's probably some exceptions, but generally speaking with more modern gun games, because gun games are still in the arcade, if you have a gun that is firmly attached to the cabinet, bolted into the cabinet, it is probably a positional gun game. I think more gun games today are positional than they are light gun. If it's a gun game where the gun is attached to the cabinet, you know, by wires, but you're basically free to move that gun around in your hand wherever you want to put it, then that is probably a light gun. In the modern sense, it's, it's a different kind of light gun, but that's a light gun. So in the modern frame of mind, Time Crisis is very much a light gun because I can take that pistol out mm-hmm. and I can wave it around all sorts of places. And it knows whether or not I'm aiming at the screen or whatever. My mounted game, a sniper game called Silent Scope. It's really interesting when I first played around with it. You can see where you're aiming sort of, kind of, by looking at the screen. But really, you have to look at it through the mounted gun itself, Mm -hmm. where there's another little screen that has the little almost perfectly zoomed-in image of whatever it is, just Mm -hmm. like you're sniping. And it's really hard to get that little fine targeting going on, so you have to actually use both at the same time. So for big, large movements, you have to look at the big screen in order to get the gun in the rough area where you want it to be. And then, okay, yeah, now I'm aiming at that roof. 
Great. Look through the scope. Okay, I can see part of the roof. Need to move down, move to the left. Ah, there's my bad guy. He holding the hostage. Okay, we saved the hostage. Next bad guy. Yep. That game, incidentally, uh, the reason that came about is that little screen that's in the gun is actually an LCD. And Konami had wanted to create a game that incorporated an LCD screen because this was the period of time when feature phones were starting to become really widespread in Japan. And so the cost of LCD screens was plummeting. And so they wanted to come up with a game that used an LCD screen, but used it in a kind of clever way. And so that's how they came up with that idea of the sniper game. So you have, you know, the two screens, you know, the inputs are are synced so that what you're seeing on the LCD is tracking the same way as it would appear on, on the big screen. But right, that's a positional game, as you said, because it's actually where you move the sniper rifle is determining whether you hit a target. It's not a light sensitive kind of thing. There's another interesting uh, mounted game where it's not actually mounted to the cabinet. It's mounted above you. And it's where you're in a pillbox and you take the helmet gun thing, you pull it down over your head and you have your screen in front of you and you can turn yourself around in 360 degrees and you're trying to keep that beach clear of the enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. So gun games are one of the types of games that are still somewhat popular in the arcade today. And the reason for that is that you can do these extra experiences by giving you that gun controller. They can give you a feel and an experience that is very different from the home, especially in this day and age on your high definition televisions where it's really not practical to do gun games in the home. So those gained kind of steady popularity as the 90s progressed. In 1995, you had Area 51, which added the extra wrinkle that it was basically streaming very advanced digitized graphics and for the monsters, even stop motion characters. The way they did that, it was one of the first arcade games to incorporate a hard drive because they were going to do it off of a CD, but the load times and whatnot were too great. So they actually stuck a hard drive in there so that they could load that stuff quickly. And because they had a hard drive in there, they could have kind of bigger and bolder digitized graphics even than a game like Lethal Enforcers did. They also improved the gun technology on Area 51. If you look back at any of the old gun games, they have essentially what's called the tunnel, by which I mean there's a piece of plexiglass right in front of you, and then the monitor is way down on the other end of kind of a long shaft. Or sometimes, depending on the game, sometimes they actually put the monitor in the base of the cabinet pointing upwards and then used a mirror to project the image that you actually shoot at. The reason that they did that is because since the light guns are measuring the timing of the light when the screen flashes, it doesn't work very well if the gun is right up against the screen. It throws off the way it's measuring the timing. By the time of Area 51, and I don't know the technical side of this, but by the time of Area 51, they were able to create more precise light guns that could still do the timing measurements even when the monitor was closer. So Area 51 had an immediacy to it that some of the older light gun games didn't have because just because the monitor was closer to you. So they could have stuff appearing right in front of you 
I mean, you still got a little distance, but it felt more right in front of you than on earlier games where you've got this kind of tunnel vision looking in on it. That was Area 51's kind of important contribution. Then House of the Dead from Sega in 1997, it really dialed up some of these other ideas. It was, I don't know if it was the very first one, but it was one of the first ones to do kind of cutscenes in the middle of the shooting action. It was kind of this move to a more cinematic style. Area 51 kind of got more cinematic. They had moments where characters were exhorting you to move on and kind of dramatic stuff happening. But even then, it only stopped the action for like a second or so before you're on to the next thing. House of the Dead was really trying to be a a more cinematic experience. And so it added little cutscenes and more plot elements in between what's going on in the shooting. And that's the game that I think as much as any is really set the standard template that gun games still kind of adhere to today, which is you have really intense shooting action with targets that are both far away shooting at you and targets coming in close melee, targets that often take multiple hits to kill, and little pieces of cinematic narrative happening in between set pieces, even during the middle of the levels. I mean, House of the Dead really, I think, set a lot of that template that's still followed today. Part of the reason for that is They knew that they didn't want to do a cop game or like a military style shooting game because this was done by the AM1 division of the company and the AM2 division of the company was doing the Virtua Cop series. So they didn't want to look like they were just copying their fellow Sega developers. So they decided on a zombie theme because it was sufficiently different from what other divisions were doing. So if you have zombies, they're not going to be really shooting at you. They're not going to be distance targets. You have to have them kind of run up to you because that's the way zombies work. If they're having the enemy run up to you, well, then it can't be something that you just shoot once or twice and then it's gone because otherwise you'll kill everything before they get to you. By taking the zombie genre to its logical conclusion, they came up with this idea of targets coming close to you and taking a lot more hits and all of this kind of intensity. It's kind of amazing in hindsight. Obviously, this was before the huge zombie craze that we have today, but it's like, How were zombies not the first light gun games, you know? (laughs) That is true. Everyone can get behind shooting zombies. I might be against shooting people for various reasons or shooting cans is kind of interesting for the first five minutes. But zombies, we got to save the world, pal. We got zombies that need to go down. And they're they're automatically relentless. They keep coming at you. They, They naturally take multiple hits to destroy. I mean, there's just... There's just so many ways that it's so logical. I mean, we went through most of video game history without any real zombie games. And then suddenly in 96, 97, you get Resident Evil and House of the Dead, bam, bam. And suddenly you're like, how did we go this long without having tons and tons of zombie games? I don't know. We had Night of the Living Dead back in the 60s. Right. I mean, the template's right there. Yeah, it's right there. (laughs) I mean, that Romero said, like, you know, zombies. You, human, survivors, guns, shopping malls, <laughs> shopping malls, military bases, <laughs> this nice farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's... Have at ye. It's amazing it took so long. But, you know, House of the Dead, uh, you know, Resident Evil plays a role too, but House of the Dead really kind of cements this kind of gameplay. And so that becomes a hugely popular series. Then, of course, you get Time Crisis, which we talked about, that had that extra layer of interactivity. And again, this is because the late 90s are a period of time. How do we provide an experience they can't get in the home? Gun peripherals are are a good way to do that. But how can we even go a step further? 
So actually, a guy in Namco's American office, a guy named Jerry Momoda, who had been in the industry for a long time, he'd been at Nintendo, he'd been at Sega, he really knew the arcade industry well, he decided, well, we could do a foot controller. Everything's hands. Nobody's really doing anything with feet. So he comes up with this idea for a foot controller. No game concept, just the controller itself. And then sends that over to the Namco engineers in Japan. And it's like, hey, I came up with this foot controller idea. What do you think about that? What do the Japanese engineers think? Well, they had a cover mechanic and the pedal. (laughs) Right. Not only just the cover mechanic, but the fact that you have multiple guns that you can switch between when you are in that cover mechanic. Right. So you can actually change your weaponry based off of what the situation might require. You have infinite ammo with a pistol, but that's a slow shooting, relatively speaking. And you might have nastier things. So when bosses come around or particularly nasty segments that you may have played earlier, you go, oh, now it's time to bring out the shotgun. Oh, now it's time to bring out the machine gun. Oh, is that the boss? I seem to have picked up this rocket launcher somewhere. (laughs) Right. Clearly playing off of some of what's been going on in first-person shooters on computer platforms like Doom and Quake and whatnot. You have this kind of progression of gun games just becoming very popular because they can provide a unique arcade experience. And they're still some of the more prominent games today with all sorts of various tricks in them. The one other wrinkle that we did briefly have to talk about was the whole LCD thing. So when you go to high-definition displays, like we said, Timing measurements of light doesn't work anymore because it's tied very specifically to how the CRT draws the screen. Positional still work, though. Positional still work. And more and more gun games go positional. But there are still a small number of light gun games out there because the benefit of the light gun game is that you have complete freedom to stand how you want. A positional game, you are tied to some degree to the cabinet. Light gun game... You can do it however feels comfortable to you, as long as you're still within the the radius of the cord, obviously. So how do you do that when you no longer have a CRT? The answer is that you move from photoresistors to infrared sensors. In a modern light gun game, with an HD screen, the way it works, you will have infrared light generators around various points around the periphery of the cabinet. And you will have an infrared sensor in the gun. The infrared sensor measures the intensity of the light. And the intensity of the light is affected by the position of the gun relative to the uh, IR beams coming from the cabinet. So by having those spaced in particular places and having the game run all the math... I mean, obviously, there's a lot of math behind this that I'm not a technical person on. But basically, it creates a infrared three-dimensional recreation of the video game space. And it can tell exactly where the gun is pointing based on what its relationship is to those IR generators. It's infrared now. That's how it's done. All right. Next time I'm at the arcade, I need to go looking for some IR sensors and um, bring around a flood lamp or something. And yeah, right. And you could do that in the home. That's kind of what the Wiimote does. I mm-hmm. mean, it's not quite the same. There's like a, a camera involved with the Wiimote. I don't know the exact technology, but it's it's not just a sensor. But there's an IR sensor that you put underneath your television and then the, the camera or whatever it is IR within emitters. the Wiimote. Yep. So it's, it's not quite the same. But that's why there were a couple of kind of target shooting games 
And you could theoretically do that in the home. You could create a system where you attach IR emitters around the periphery of your television and create that same matrix that allows it to determine gun position. But obviously, that's a lot of headache and a lot of bother and a lot of silliness. So you really don't see gun games in the home anymore. They're basically dead. You would be going back to the Dark Ages with the Nintendo Power Glove and that three sensor thingy you put on your television. <laughs> right, something like that. And no one wants to do that. So, yeah, the gun game is, is essentially dead in the home. It lives on in the arcade. The arcade is not relevant in the same way it used to be. So gun games anymore don't really have a big influence on the development of the industry. <laughs> They're just kind of this side thing that people play in uh, family entertainment centers and movie theaters and the few remaining arcades and wherever else video They're games are found. mostly just novelties. Right. You know, for a time, with a real peak, I think, in the early to mid-90s, gun games were one of the, uh, the very popular genres. That's kind of an overview of some of the big gun games and, and kind of the technology that made them work. And if you're younger, just go to your local arcade or fun center or movie theater, and you'll find a gun game or two if you're lucky, and it's probably be the same one we played back in the 90s. It very well could be <laughs> in some cases. There are some old time crisis cabinets still out there, that's for sure. <laughs> and Area 51 and others. So, oh, yeah. yeah, they're out there. All right. We shot all the zombies. I need to go find some more vacuum tubes to put into my manual lever action uh, Odyssey gun. What shall we adventure into next time? Well, I thought it might be fun to go back to the very, very beginning of programmable consoles. Let's get into some uh, 1970s action, which of course is stuff that I am feverishly writing about right now in that book thing that I have to get to my publisher uh, middle of next year. That'll get done. I have every faith in myself and caffeine and panic. So that will get done. But the very first programmable console that came out was the Fairchild Channel F. It's a footnote. Most people don't really know a lot about Fairchild's involvement in the video game industry. It's an interesting story. It's a story of a company that was kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and then was in the right place with the wrong frame of mind and basically just completely psyched themselves out of ever being able to be successful in the video game industry. Could they have been? Maybe. But it's kind of an interesting cautionary tale of how the wrong way to get involved in emerging industries and an interesting story to tell. So kind of Fairchild's history in consumer electronics with particular focus on that one time when it thought it would be a good idea to get into the video game industry. So, a fairy tale child, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworld.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org 
used under a Creative Commons attribution license.